Today, we take a look at key developments in the fight to avert climate catastrophe, an exciting new victory for the Palestine Solidarity Movement, a crackdown on journalists that has gained momentum with successive administrations, and how Democratic Senator Joe Manchin has vowed to help Republicans defeat a key piece of voting rights legislation introduced in Congress and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on The Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's June 8th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. If you enjoyed the show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. And once you subscribe, Register for our patrons-only seminar with Brian next Wednesday, June 16th at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Supporters can ask Brian questions beforehand and live on the seminar. I'm Walter Smolarik here with Esther Averam and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Averam is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Nicole Roussel will be back with us next week. Well, Brian, let's start off by talking about some important struggles on the environmental front. Right. I And before we do that, I mean, it's part of it, but I want to just mention that I was looking at a Facebook post this morning posted by our friend Ted Rawl. Ted is an award-winning editorial cartoonist. He posted a photo. It's of a young woman curled up under a blanket in the New York City subway. This woman was clearly homeless. Ted's caption on the post was, capitalism is the disease, revolution is the cure. And I thought, that is a good slogan. That was a slogan that was made very popular by the Party for Socialism and Liberation, PSL, in 2016. The PSL banners all across the country read, Trump is the symptom, capitalism is the disease, and revolution is the cure. Now, revolutions don't happen very frequently, but they occur when the existing ruling class in a society is unwilling or unable to solve a major crisis in society. Then some other class, an oppressed class, and a new leadership come forward to use society's resources to provide a solution. The biggest crisis facing society today and going forward is, of course, climate catastrophe. As we record this show, there is a massive civil disobedience action taking place in northern Minnesota against the construction of a new huge pipeline by a Canadian corporation called Enbridge, which will bring tar sands oil from Canada into the United States. This is going straight through the lands of the indigenous people land protected by treaty rights. 
The police, the cops, the sheriffs in Minnesota are engaged in carrying out a police state repression against indigenous people and other activists, and Enbridge reimburses them for all of their costs. So every time they stop somebody erroneously to give them a ticket, every time they harass an activist, every time they arrest somebody, they put in a little voucher with Enbridge and the company pays them back. This group of activists that are carrying out the civil disobedience movement today, they are led by indigenous people in northern Minnesota. They wrote in a statement, we will not stand by and watch a fossil fuel corporation line its pockets as so much is destroyed, producing oil we don't need. From June 5th to June 8th, we will gather in northern Minnesota to put our bodies on the line to stop construction and to tell the world that the days of tar sands pipelines are over. Only a major nonviolent uprising, including direct action, will propel this issue to the top of the nation's consciousness and force Biden to act. We are rising. Now, we're going to hear a short audio clip in a moment from one of the indigenous leaders in northern Minnesota, where this civil disobedience action is taking place today. But at the same time as the action is undertaken by the indigenous people of northern Minnesota and by these activists coming from all over the country, a new report came out. I want to read a couple words to you about it. Economies worldwide nearly ground to a halt over the 15 months of the coronavirus pandemic, leading to a startling drop in global greenhouse gas emissions. But that did little to slow the steady accumulation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which has now reached the highest levels since accurate measurements began 63 years ago, according to a scientific report released on Monday. Quote, fossil fuel burning is really at the heart of this. If we don't tackle fossil fuel burning, the problem is not going away. It's not going to go away. Ralph Keeling, a geochemist at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, said in an interview with the Washington Post, adding that the world ultimately will have to make emission cuts that are much larger and sustained than anything that happened during the pandemic. The report goes on to detail why this has happened the year after the pandemic. I'm going to read again a little bit. This is again from the Washington Post. Scientists from Scripps in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration said on Monday that levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide peaked in May, reaching a monthly average of nearly 419 parts per million. This represents an increase from May 2020 means of 417 parts per million, and it marks the highest level since the measurements began 63 years ago. Quote, It's not significant in the sense that we are surprised. It was fully expected. It's significant in that it shows that we are still fully on the wrong track. The scientists continued, human beings continue to add about 40 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide pollution to the atmosphere each year, and that avoiding catastrophic changes to the climate will require reducing that number to zero as quickly as possible. Now, that's where the issue of revolution comes in. In order for the human race and society as we know it, or 
even better than as we know it, to be able to continue, we have to go to a situation where there is a zero number for the release of more fossil fuels, more carbon from the earth. We have to bring it to zero. And the capitalist ruling class won't do that. We've talked with Richard Wolff over and over again. The reason the capitalists won't do it is not because they're not aware of the danger, but the CEO of every company has to answer to its biggest investors about how to maximize profits in the next quarter, not in the next two quarters, not in the next year, but in the next quarter. And all decisions are made based on how to maximize profit. And if they don't do that, they'll be relieved of their position as the CEO. In other words, the capitalist system is hooked on economic expansion, rewards competition, and is driven solely exclusively by profit. And as a consequence, the changes that need to be made and can be made to bring that number to zero won't be made. And that's why there needs to be a revolution. And in fact, because of the crisis that is going to ensue as a consequence of this failure, another failure of the capitalist system, the profit-making system, we will have a dynamic, radical transformation. This will be the next American revolution, and it will be caused, in all likelihood, by this kind of catastrophe. Esther, the capitalists could solve the problem. They won't solve the problem because profit comes first. But the people in northern Minnesota right now are showing us how to stop the problem. They're taking action. So, right, Brian, the activists in Minnesota are part of an ongoing tradition and uprising among Native American people here in the United States and their allies and supporters because they're in the forefront of this environmental movement to safeguard our water, our air, our land. And it is overwhelmingly the land of Native Americans that are being breach that are being violated in this last scramble to, you know, pump the last fossil fuels from the earth, polluting our water, polluting the land and polluting the air. So we have a clip from Deborah Topping described as a water activist out there in Minnesota, part of this mass action. And she's speaking to journalist Ford Fisher. Can you talk about the issues that you're out here protesting uh, about line three? I am here to protect our treaty rights of hunting, fishing, and gathering. I have gathered Monoman, uh, the good seed, with my husband of 38 years. Um, we have taught our daughters, um, and we have also taught our grandchildren, our grandsons. Um, so we have three generations out there practicing our treaty rights. And uh, protecting Nibby is an inherent right. Yes, I want to encourage everyone to go to the website Stop Line 3, and it's the numeral 3, stopline3.org. You can learn all about the struggle. We know Standing Rock became an epic battle. That battle's not over, in fact, where the police state working with capitalist corporations violate the treaty rights of indigenous people and also work using all kinds of police state tactics to crush or to try to crush the movement of activists. Let's turn to another activist movement. Walter, in the last month, as we know, as the Israeli aggression against Gaza increased, 
the global movement, including the movement in solidarity with the Palestinian people in the United States, reached an all-time high. Perhaps millions of people were in demonstrations in cities, big and small, all over the United States. Nothing like that has ever happened before. And you can see the political climate has shifted and the media, the capitalist media, the politicians, they know it. Israel is more and more identified as an apartheid state, like the South African apartheid state became the the focus of international condemnation. And there was an amazing action, not one, but multiple actions at ports in the Bay Area, in Los Angeles, northern New Jersey, against the docking of Israeli boats. These were dock workers. These were Palestinian rights activists. These were people from the Answer Coalition and the peace movement. You were able to talk with one of the organizers. Let's talk first real quick, just frame this interview that you did, I believe, with Sabina Wildman, who is one of the organizers in the Bay Area. We have a short interview with her, and then we're going to come back and do some of our other stories, including the assaults on the First Amendment and on the media. But just help us understand your interview a little bit. I'm so excited about what happened at the Port of Oakland over the weekend because it was such a strong showing of community support for the Palestinian cause and a call by Palestinian trade unions to prevent ships carrying Israeli goods from docking anywhere in the world. And the workers of ILWU, that's the union representing the dock workers, respected that community picket line. And so this Israeli ship from this huge international corporation called Zim was turned away. It was unable to dock and business as usual, profiteering as usual could not go on because of this very courageous action. And, you know, in terms of the broader political context that this comes in, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think that what's happening in terms of public consciousness around the issue of Palestine and the willingness to take to the streets and demonstrate public solidarity with the Palestinian people's cause and struggle movement for liberation is absolutely at an all-time high. That's both the case in terms of a dedicated core, a growing dedicated core of activists who see being in solidarity with Palestine as essential to being an anti-racist person overall. You can't be against racism here in the United States and support an apartheid regime like Israel abroad, and much less the U.S. government's arming funding of that apartheid regime. And also just in terms of the overall public, and especially it becomes more stark when you break it down by age. Like, for instance, I was looking at an opinion poll the other week, and it asked people the question, who do you think is more responsible for the violence that's going on right now? This was during the 11-day military campaign. Who do you think is more responsible for the violence right now? Is it Israel or is it Hamas? This is a terrible way to ask the question, right? Because it accepts the framing as the conflict being between Israel and Hamas, this you know scary, demonized, quote-unquote, terrorist organization. But even with that framing, 60% of young people say that Israel is more responsible for the violence. This is something that's totally, I mean, just a few years ago would be unthinkable because the mainstream political consensus in favor of Israel, absolutely in favor of Israel, was so ironclad, but that's really shifted and cracked in recent years. And I think that this action in Oakland is such a great example of people putting those beliefs, for millions of people, newfound beliefs, into very effective practice. 
We're happy to be joined now by Sabina Wildman. She is an organizer with the Answer Coalition, which was a part of the Block the Boat Coalition that carried out an exciting, important, historic action at the Port of Oakland in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Welcome to the show, Sabina. Thank you so much. It's good to be here. So tell us a little bit about this action. I mean, what happened this weekend at the Port of Oakland and what makes it so important? Yeah, so this was definitely a historic action. Like you said, hundreds of workers and community members were gathered at the Port of Oakland on Friday to stop the Volans, which is a ship that's contracted by the Israeli shipping company Zim. It's actually the largest Israeli shipping company, and it's one of the top 20 shipping companies in the world. Um, And the Zim has a history of profiting from these settler colonial projects, whether it's Israel or transporting weapons even to the United States itself. So the blocking of this Zim ship was a huge demonstration of the working class community support, as well as labor solidarity to stop business with apartheid Israel. And yeah, it was a huge victory and a huge success. Uh, We had picket lines at six gates at one point, and we shut down the whole Port of Oakland for two whole work shifts. And it was great to see, you know, all the community members out there. Some of them, it was their first pickets they'd been to. People had traveled from hours away. And then seeing the solidarity from the workers, from the ILWU Local 10 longshoremen workers who refused to cross the picket line, from the truck drivers who turned around. A lot of them at first were, you know, they're losing a day's pay. So it was a little upsetting. But after we talked to them, let them know why we were out there. I heard so many, I was a picket captain, so I got to have these interactions with the workers. And, you know, so many of them were like, you know what, like, we're in solidarity with you. And they would like, you know, honk their horns, turn around their cars, record us. And they were glad that we were out there. Some of the workers were even telling us little tips on like, make sure to do this. Or like, I'm so glad to see you out here. I hope you keep coming back to really make an impact. So it was just definitely a really strong show of solidarity with the Palestinian struggle. And it was in response to a call actually from the Palestine General Federation of Trade Unions, where they were literally calling on the U.S. labor movement to make a stand, to take part in BDS, to block ships, these Israeli ships, to really hurt the Israeli economy and isolate it, kind of in a very similar way to what we did back in the day fighting against South African apartheid. And there's a long history of that at the port of Oakland as well. So this was not the first time that the Zim ship was blocked and turned around and you know, lost tons of money by not unloading its cargo. This has happened before in 2014, where the Zim ship had, you know, attempted to dock in the port of Oakland and the pro-Palestinian organizers and the workers, you know, stood against that and prevented the Zim ship from docking. And that was three times in less than three months back in 2014. And then there's a much longer history of, of also doing this with South African apartheid ships. So this is a continuation of the Port of Oakland, really like the community really showing up strong at the Port of Oakland and the labor movement also showing up strong. I think something that was notable was that the endorsers of the Block the Boat action included the San Francisco Labor Council, as well as a local SEIU. And so you know, in addition to the Northern Council of the ILWU. So this was a big deal in terms of labor show for the Palestinian struggle and something that 
I guess, rung with me personally, was that the president, Trent Willis, the president of ILWU Local 10, said on Friday that the workers' struggle is worldwide. When workers of the world figure that out and realize that we have to band together to make change, then it'll be a better world, including for the Palestinian people. Worker power and economic power is real power. It's more powerful than those bombs Israel's dropping. And so that was just, I feel like, a really beautiful way of tying together what this action against this Israeli apartheid profiting Zim shipping company, what it would it really look like on Friday. Yeah, wow. I mean, those are such moving words. You know, a lot of our listeners have been to demonstrations. A lot of our listeners have organized demonstrations. But this is a unique type of action at a port, a picket at a port. Tell us a little bit more about the organizing of this action. What kind of unique challenges did people face when putting together this this ultimately very impressive, successful show of solidarity with the Palestinian people's struggle? Yeah, definitely a good amount of challenges because this Zim ship was trying to do everything it could to prevent us from winning this victory. So to be totally honest, you know, internally, we were on call for a lot of weeks. We had things all packed up and ready to go for 5 a.m. some mornings when it didn't end up showing up. So the Zim ship was playing tricks with us, and that's what they're currently doing at all these ports across the country. You know, because they don't want to lose money. And they also know that these victories really, really build working class power and really build the struggle um, for Palestine. And so what the Zimbo kept doing was kind of faking us out. And so I would say that one of the things that we had to balance was making sure that we would have enough people show up when we put out the call to action to mobilize to the port, but also making sure that, you know, we didn't call on people too early that the Zim ship would turn around and decide not to dock that day. So it was a lot of internal, really strategic organizing that was led by AROC and ANSWER played a huge role. And so it was definitely a community effort and, you know, working with everyone who had any kind of information on the maritime situation in the port. And I guess another challenge was making sure that We had pickets that were strong enough at all of the possible gates (laughs) at the Port of Oakland on the day of because, you know, the port wants to make money, the Zim ship wants to make money and any disruption to that, you know, they're not happy with. So they're going to try to find a way around these pickets. And so like I mentioned, you know, we had originally planned to have these four specific pickets, one of which... I was a picket captain at, and then during that day, we figured out that we needed two more pickets. And so we had to, you had to be very quick on your feet during the day of to really respond to what was needed to make sure that the whole port was like blockaded and make sure that we did it in a way that was, you know, working to successfully do it in a way that like the workers would be allowed and be able to show their support and be in solidarity So making sure that we had really strong pickets that were moving from fence to fence, making sure that we had strong security and making sure that we had a huge turnout, which we did. And it was great because, you know, in the morning when we had that victory, we announced it and there's always that fear like, okay, we're announcing there's a victory and we're telling people to come back later in the afternoon. Like, I really hope people still come back, but that was nothing to be concerned about because honestly, I would say even in the afternoon, there was an even stronger showing of community leaders coming out. So that was great to see. And it was beautiful because 
I guess another challenge of these pickets at the port is that we're all spread out throughout the port. So at all these different berths, there's pretty long distances. <laughs> the port's pretty big. And so, you know, all of these community pickets all around the port supporting Palestine. And then, you know, we didn't get to really visually see each other all together like a typical big rally. So at the end of the day, Friday, after we had our second victory, our comrades led a march back from the furthest gate, and then we came all the way back together to Birth 30, where there was a big celebration and a rally. And it was great. You know, we saw the boat moving and we're chanting like, move, boat, get out the way. And I've been hearing that chant happening all over the country now, too. So anyways, it was definitely a very powerful moment and a big victory for both the Palestinian struggle as well as like what we can do as the labor movement in this country to because we have the power as workers because we keep things running to disrupt the flow of Israeli profits and really like hurt the Israeli economy. So this was a really powerful moment. One last question. I mean, there's this mistaken idea that's out there that unions and the labor movement more broadly should exclusively be concerned with the wages and benefits and conditions of the members of their own unions. But what you all were saying out at the Port of Oakland was something fundamentally different, right, about solidarity and, and in fact, international solidarity. Uh, just elaborate on that a little bit, if you would. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think that more and more, and this is something building off of what we saw last summer, right, with like labor unions, like the ATU workers, the bus drivers, right, refusing to take protesters to the police station when there was the uprisings against police terror last summer. And so I, I think it's a continuation of seeing that the workers are the same people who, you know, there are plenty of port workers who are Palestinian who know the struggle. There are plenty of port workers who understand for whatever reasons, including being a worker in, in this capitalist country, who understand what these oppressions look like and that they're all connected. And I think that it couldn't be more obvious, like just like what the president Trent Willis said of like, workers' struggle is worldwide and understanding that the Palestine General Federation of Trade Unions in Gaza, you know, called on the unions here. And so when unions call on other unions, it's like this is these are these are the workers all together around the world uniting together. And this is a union issue. And this is a labor issue. And at the end of the day, I think that workers are starting to see that as workers, we actually have a huge amount of power you know, whether it's withholding our labor, whether it's just, you know, respecting picket lines, whether it's making statements or calls to support BDS, that actually has a very big impact because we're some of the biggest organizations of workers in this country. And the US empire profits off the backs of these dock workers, these truck drivers, just like in the same way that the US empire is profiting off of, you know, selling these weapons and supporting Israeli apartheid. And so I think there's a growing consciousness among the working class here about about these issues that aren't so distant, you know, and are workers issues. And one of the members of the executive committee of the Palestine General Federation of Trade Unions said, you know, after seeing 
our successful victory on Friday. This is what he said. He said, it warms our hearts in the besieged occupied Gaza Strip and the rest of occupied Palestine that our comrades led by AROC and with the solidarity of our fellow workers in ILWU Local 10 achieved this great block the boat victory against Zim in Oakland. And then they said, we call upon all dock workers worldwide to intensify the boycott campaign against Zim ships and all business profiting from apartheid Israel and solidarity with our people's struggle for freedom and justice in Palestine. And so it's so clear that the people in Palestine know that dock workers have this huge ability to shut down these ports to prevent these Israeli apartheid ships from coming in. And I think that the fact that these workers are being called on and are responding to these calls ready to stand in solidarity, whether it's, you know, now in Vancouver and New York and Seattle, you know, all across the country, we're seeing dock workers support the struggle. And even beyond this country, there are dock workers in Italy who did the same things and in South Africa. And we're expecting to see more of those coordinated worldwide actions of dock workers refusing to unload these Israeli ships. So I think that that's just like a huge demonstration of the fact that the Palestinian struggle is a labor issue and that it's something that workers have the power to like really make a change about. And I think that's huge. That's huge to know that something that you do as a union, as a collective group of workers can actually like build something so big towards the fight for liberation for people. And I think the history of dock workers doing that, you know, to bring down South African apartheid just, you know, gives even more weight to the fact that this works um, and that we got to just keep doing it. Yeah, such a crucially important point. Well, we're going to leave it there. We were joined by Sabina Wildman. She is an organizer with the Answer Coalition, which is part of the Block the Boat Coalition. All right, let's turn to another topic, one of the big stories that we're covering today. And that would be the Trump administration's war against journalists, which was continued by the Department of Justice. This was a concealed war, an undercover war against reporters from the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN. I'm looking at the New York Times on June 4th. U.S. waged secret legal battle to obtain emails of four Times reporters. Okay, the Times is talking about their reporters, but let's read a little bit from this story, Esther, and then you can take it from there. The push began in the Trump administration and continued under President Biden, and the Justice Department obtained a gag order to keep it from public view. In the last weeks of the Trump administration and continuing under President Biden, the Justice Department fought a secret legal battle to obtain the email logs of four New York Times reporters in a hunt for their sources, a top lawyer for the newspaper said Friday night. While the Trump administration never informed the Times about the effort, the Biden administration continued waging the fight this year, telling a handful of top Times executives about it, but imposing a gag order to shield it from public view said the lawyer David McCraw, who called the move unprecedented. The gag order prevented the executives from disclosing the government's efforts to seize the records, even to the executive editor, Dean Baquette, and other newsroom leaders. Mr. McCraw said Friday that a federal court had lifted the order, which had been in effect since March 3rd, freeing him to reveal what happened. Now, the battle was ultimately 
an unsuccessful effort by the DOJ, the Department of Justice, to seize the email logs from Google, which operates the Times email system and which has resisted the efforts to obtain the information. Now, this was also email logs and phone logs, and it wasn't just the New York Times. It was also reporters for the Washington Post and the CNN and probably other media outlets. But Esther, you know, here you have Joe Biden saying it's wrong to have the government compel reporters to turn over their sources. But the DOJ under Biden continued the same policy. Exactly. And we have to remember that Joe Biden was Obama's vice president and the Obama administration really got the ball rolling with this. I mean, they had in, you know, unrelated leak investigations, you know, seized phone records for reporters at the Associated Press and used a search warrant to obtain a Fox News reporter's emails. And so the Trump Justice Department just went on to charge several current or former officials with leaking or with other crimes arising from leak investigations. And it broke new ground by charging WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, you know, which we've covered many times, you know, with a crime for the journalistic style activities of soliciting and publishing classified information, information in the public interest, information about war crimes of the United States in Afghanistan and in Iraq. So this is just part of this ongoing war for information and truth by these imperialist governments, not just the United States, but in Europe, to limit what information is distributed to the public. And it's not only happening here in the United States and in Europe, as I said, but also, like Walter just mentioned, in terms of the the current struggle in Israel. You know, we just had an Al Jazeera journalist violently assaulted over the weekend on Saturday. Israeli defense forces broke her hand, assaulted her, detained her for more than seven hours because they did not want her to report on Sheikh Jarrah, where Palestinians are being ethnically cleansed from their homes. And, you know, this is going on after the ceasefire has occurred. So I'm just saying that these are ongoing events and there's a real battle for truth and information. And, you know, that's why we have a program called the Socialist Program, because there's a determined effort in conjunction with corporate media. These same reporters that are complaining about the Biden administration, the Trump administration taking these measures against them, they're part of the same problem of skewing information and keeping information from the public. So I don't know how to feel about it. That's a good point. I mean, let's go over what happened with the whistleblowers, not reporters per se, but under Obama. You had the arrest and sentencing to 35 years in jail of Chelsea Manning. Chelsea helped tell the story of Iraq by releasing the material, the videos that became known as the Iraq war logs. Edward Snowden, who revealed to all of us for the first time the truth that the U.S. government, the National Security Agency, collects information on every email we send, every phone call we make, and stores it, retains it. Edward Snowden revealed that. It didn't come from the politicians, even the congressional oversight committees. They were under a gag order. They knew about it. Thomas Drake, also prosecuted by Obama. Stephen Jinwoo Kim, he was a State Department as an advisor on nuclear proliferation. He revealed that North Korea would conduct a nuclear bomb test to a Fox News reporter. He was sent to prison by the Obama administration. James Hitzelberger, 
also sent to prison. John Kiriakou, who I used to co-host the show Loud and Clear. John was a CIA official. He revealed that the CIA was engaged in torture when the CIA and the Bush administration was asserting that there was no torture program. John Kiriakou said, yes, they were. And he knew about it. And he said it on national TV. The Bush administration tried to prosecute him in 2008, but they dropped it. But it was the Obama administration at the request of John Brennan that started the John Kiriakou task force. And they charged John with like 60 years worth of charges. He finally pled guilty to a very minor charge and he went to prison for two and a half years. Jeffrey Sterling, former CIA officer, African-American CIA officer, he was charged with leaking classified information again to James Risen. Jeffrey Sterling was protesting racism inside the CIA. This was the greatest number of whistleblowers sent to prison by any administration ever was the Obama administration. So what we see, the trajectory we see here is that the police state, the repressive force of the state that's being used against the media, no matter how compliant and complicit the media is with the dominant narrative of the capitalist class, and those courageous whistleblowers who come forward to do what we're told is protected, which is if they're exposing abuse or fraud or illegal unconstitutional activity by the government, they're supposed to be protected. But instead, the Obama administration and then Trump and now Biden taking away people's rights and the right of society to know. And Julian Assange, who exposed American war crimes, still in prison, having spent years in the Ecuadorian embassy in what the United Nations denounced as a human rights violation, is still in prison, even though he's never been convicted of anything because the U.S. state apparatus, the police state, doesn't want the people to know the truth. Yeah, and the Biden administration could have dropped that prosecution, but it did not. And even after the judge Baratzer in London said that he should not be extradited because American prisons are so awful, she didn't stand up for his press rights or his rights as a journalist, but said that he should not be extradited because American prisons are so terrible. The Biden administration even appealed her decision. So the Biden administration could have dropped this unprecedented persecution of a journalist, but it didn't. But I want to just say two more things on this subject. In Israel, not only did this military assault happen on this journalist, but Israel also detained the two people who really sent out this video that went worldwide viral. That's Mona and Mohammed El-Kurd. Those are the two twins from Sheikh Jarrah, who created a videotape of this Israeli settler from New York saying, you know, if I don't steal your house, someone else will, right? So Israel detained these two people. These are the people who really helped spark this, this uprising globally in solidarity with Palestinian people, detain these two people, and then let them go over the weekend. So still you have another example of this police state this police state in Israel coming down on trying to prevent the information from coming out about what they're doing and then penalizing the journalists and the citizen journalists through social media who are really getting the information out to people. And then another thing about the Biden administration is that they have basically come out in support of dropping a lawsuit, dismissing a lawsuit 
brought against the Trump administration, D.C. police and other federal officials who assaulted peaceful protesters, journalists, families that came out to support the movement for black lives and uprising against racism last June. You'll remember, we've talked about this before, how Trump basically sent out the military to push back and assault these peaceful protesters last June, including our colleague, Nicole Rassault, out there as a journalist last June 1st. And so the Biden administration dismissing this lawsuit that's been brought on behalf of Black Lives Matter DC and other people here in DC. So that's another situation where the Biden administration is not coming down on the side of freedom of the press and freedom of speech, First Amendment protections that we're supposed to have. That's really important. We see that even though the Democrats and Republicans go to war against each other, you know, over who's going to control the government, you know, there's $3 trillion in contracts over the course of a a four-year term that gets handed out. So each party wants to be in charge, of course. But, you know, on certain issues, they have a lot of unity. Julian Assange should stay in prison. The military-industrial complex should always be funded to the tune of a trillion dollars. Here's a new story. Senate poised to pass huge industrial policy bill to counter China. The broad support for the bill highlights how competition with Beijing is one of the few issues that can still unite both political parties. That's the headline in the New York Times. I mean, listen to this. It's an especially striking shift for Republicans who are following the lead of former President Donald J. Trump and casting aside what was once their party's staunch opposition to government intervention in the economy. Now both parties are embracing an enormous investment in semiconductor manufacturing, artificial intelligence research, robotics, quantum computing, and a range of other technologies. And I want to read one final paragraph from the New York Times, and it speaks to what the real story is in America. Quote, Faced with an urgent competitive threat from China, the Senate is poised to pass the most expansive industrial policy legislation in U.S. history, blowing past partisan divisions over government support for private industry to embrace a nearly quarter trillion dollar investment in building up America's manufacturing and technological edge. So, Walter, they can't unite when it comes to giving Americans affordable housing. They can't unite to give Americans affordable health care or universal health care or free health care. That wouldn't even be considered. You can't unite in order to get rid of student debt. You can't unite to extend unemployment benefits or to raise the minimum wage, which hasn't been raised since 2009. Can't be unity on any of those things. But when it comes to fighting China, there's unity. They're willing to spend a quarter trillion dollars to build up America's manufacturing and technological edge. This isn't America's manufacturing and technological edge. This is a subsidy for the capitalists. And on the, for the capitalists, they are united. Absolutely. And especially for that section of the capitalist class that's most intimately involved in the arms trade and the production of weapons of war and all the various technologies and components that can be used for war, which is an enormous sector of the U.S. economy. I mean, multiple trillions of dollars every year, tremendous political influence with politicians of both mainstream capitalist parties. Yeah, absolutely. And really, I mean, even if you don't have a hand in the arms trade, if you're an elite business owner, if you're an executive at a bank or a major corporation, 
and you're looking at the world, you know that China represents the greatest threat to the domination of Washington and Wall Street all around the world. And the domination of Washington and Wall Street is why you're so rich. And so it makes perfect sense that these politicians who are millionaires themselves, many times multi, 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 multi millionaires, would share that perspective, both because of their own personal interests and because of the interests of the people who pay for their campaigns and who control the political parties that they're members of. So yeah, I mean, this unbelievably dangerous march to war with China, one that could be that could be truly devastating, completely devastating for every human being on the planet goes by without anyone really arguing against it, at least not anybody who is highlighted by the mainstream media. And partly, it's just this march towards war is always a march towards the public treasury for the military-industrial complex. In order to keep giving a trillion dollars a year to the armaments industry and to the war makers, there has to be an enemy. So why not China? Let's talk about enemies at home, Esther, real quick. We're going to go fast here through our last final stories. Enemies at home. Let's make the enemy at home be Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. Joe Manchin is a man of principle. He wants to make sure it's a point of principle for him that when the Republicans take voting rights away from the people in the United States, especially black and Latino people, Joe Manchin's going to be right there to make sure that nothing happens to counteract it. He vows that he will stop uh, the new voting rights bill from being passed. He's, of course, his 50th vote is required for the Democrats. It's amazing what Manchin gets away with. No filibuster, so there can't be a, a family extended leave or the child care credits, infrastructure jobs program, now voting rights. Again, it shows how the Congress, the checks and balances in Congress are always a check against anything progressive. Right. Well, you've mentioned Joe Manchin was key in blocking the $15 minimum wage increase, which was actually going to be incremental. It wasn't even going to happen all at one time. He won't support ending the filibuster, which is really the linchpin for getting anything done, it seems, this year. he is against the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021. He is key in blocking the investigation into the January 6th fascist attack on the Capitol. He was not out there, you know, campaigning to have this investigation. The full infrastructure bill, he had a problem with that. He wasn't going to support that. And he's part of the whole process of weakening that legislation. So now on Sunday, he published an op-ed saying that he won't support SB1, the For the People Act, which we've pointed out does have a poison pill in it to hurt you know, the Green Party and the rise of third parties. But it has a lot in it to strengthen, and more importantly, to beat back some of this wave of legislation that's being passed in states across the country to hurt voters and to suppress the vote, particularly the votes of poor working people, black people, Latinx people, and students, young people, even the elderly who won't be able to enjoy the same types of freedom in terms of mailing ballots, which they enjoyed during the pandemic. So he won't support it because it is not bipartisan. And it's so hypocritical because these bills that are being passed across the country, Florida, Georgia, 
these bills being passed around the country are not bipartisan. These are Republican legislatures across the country that are specifically passing legislation to hurt voters, mainly people of color across the country. Let's turn to another story, the future of warfare. We're now looking at it. And of course, Libya, having had its government destroyed by a NATO bombing campaign, again, during the Obama administration, the U.S., Britain, and France dropped thousands of bombs and missiles and finally was able to disperse and make flee the Libyan government of Muammar Gaddafi. Gaddafi, 70 years old, was hunted down and lynched in the streets. Hillary Clinton that day laughingly said, we came, we saw he died. She was quite giggly about the lynching of this head of state. Then, you know, slavery for black Libyans and other African people was reinstated in the now what they call liberated Libya after Gaddafi's government was destroyed. Now there's a civil war. The U.S. is backing the Libyan government, and that government is fighting other militias, and it's using Libyans as guinea pigs for new weapons being tried out by the United States and other governments. Here's a headline. This is from LiveScience.com. Artificial intelligence drone hunted down and killed soldiers in Libya with no human input. No human input. A report suggests that artificial intelligence drones attacked human targets without any humans consulted prior to the strike. So this is the new weapon, everybody. The drones are, they were attacking retreating soldiers of one of the rebel armies, the army of Haftar. And wherever they tried to hide these killer drones operating based on artificial intelligence, no drone operator was telling them who to kill, went in and killed people they thought they were people who were part of the retreating rebel army. Now, how did they distinguish between, say, a retreating soldier and a farmer with a rake? Well, they can't, of course. So the farmer with the rake will also be killed by these, quote, autonomous weapons. And that's what's going on, Walter. We're moving towards drone warfare, which makes you know all the bleeding done on the other side and thus concealing from the metropole, from the center of imperialism, from the people who, say, live in the United States, Britain, France, the horrors of war by inflicting sort of this quiet devastation on the victims. And now we have robots killing people. And of course, the Pentagon will be all about this. And why not do it in Libya? As we were talking earlier at our editorial meeting, Esther made the point that, can you imagine if Robotic drones were killing people in Berlin or in Western Europe or in the United States. But this is Libya. So, hey, why not use Libya and Libyans as guinea pigs? Yeah, I mean, such such important points. I usually don't read poetry on the show, but I think this is just too too perfect. This is from Bertolt Brecht, who's a famous socialist revolutionary playwright. He wrote... General, your tank is a powerful vehicle. It smashes down forests and crushes 100 men, but it has one defect. It needs a driver. General, your bomber is powerful. It flies faster than a storm and carries more than an elephant, but it has one defect. It needs a mechanic. General, man is very useful. He can fly and he can kill, but he has one defect. He can think. 
And what Bertolt Brecht was pointing out there many, many decades ago was so true that a natural break on the ability of the elite of the capitalist class to wage war, devastating, horrifying, horrific war, is that they need to find people to do it for them. Because certainly the executives at Lockheed Martin, Halliburton, and ExxonMobil, they're not going to do the killing and dying, and they're not going to send their kids to do the killing and dying. They have to get other people to do it for them. And they appear to be on the precipice, or in fact, I guess, have developed technology that allows them to take humans totally out of the equation and just get artificial intelligence-driven robots to do their killing for them. And so now they don't even need, you know, the drone pilots, for instance, in Nevada or in the desert of California, you know, piloting the killer drones from thousands of miles away. And by the way, the people who do that have extremely high rates of, for instance, alcoholism or suicide. This allows them to take even that out of the equation and just have completely automated robots do their killing for them. And as you pointed out, conceal that from the population here in the United States, because all the suffering, all of the dying, all of the bleeding will happen in places far, far away from the borders of the United States and in areas that have been, you know, so heavily propagandized too, like in Libya. So yeah, I mean, what a troubling terrifying development that makes the anti-war movement all the more necessary and essential. You know, I had to chime in because you had some poetry, (laughs) because I think I've mentioned on the show before the hip-hop artist Loki, and I talked about his piece, Terrorism, and he says, they're calling me a terrorist like they don't know who the terror is, insulting my intelligence. Oh, how these people judge. Lumumba was democracy. Mossadegh was democracy. Allende was democracy. Hypocrisy, it bothers me. Call you terrorists if you don't want to be a colony. Refuse to bow down to a policy of robberies. Is terrorism my lyrics? When more Vietnam vets kill themselves after the war than die in it, this is very basic. One nation in the world has over a thousand military bases. They say it's religion when clearly it isn't. It's not just Muslims that oppose your imperialism. Is Hugo Chavez a Muslim? Nah, I didn't think so. Is Castro a Muslim? Nah, I didn't think so. It's like the definition didn't ever exist. I guess it's all dependent on who your nemesis is. Irrelevant how eloquent the rhetoric and peddler is. They're telling fibs. Now tell us who the terrorist is. I just love this piece. <laughs> I had to mention it because you you did some poetry. Because when you talk about these killer robots, that's terrorism. People all over the Middle East especially have been terrorized during the last two decades by this drone warfare. And this is just taking it to another level. Let's turn real quick. There's two final stories. The election results are not fully in Walter in Peru. This is an important election And I think even though it's very tight, the leftist organizer, leader may, in fact, turn out to be the winner real quick. What's happening? Yeah, that's right. I I think we can say that, you know, there may still be some efforts to steal the election, but Pedro Castillo has squeaked out a victory in an extremely hard fought election in Peru, an extremely surprising one, overwhelmingly in 
the countryside in areas that are generally more impoverished, more underdeveloped, subject to some of the most extreme injustices and inequalities in Peruvian society, voted overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly in favor of Pedro Castillo, who is a prominent union leader. He's a teacher and he is himself from the rural poor. And so the the elite the Peruvian elite media, elite politicians pulled out all the stops to try to prevent him from becoming the president after he won a surprise victory in the first round of the elections. He has pledged to convene a constituent assembly to rewrite the country's constitution to put an end to the endemic corruption by the political elite in Peru and to fundamentally reorganize the economy to guarantee social rights to the working and poor people of Peru and to reclaim the natural wealth of the country so that it isn't just siphoned off, stolen by multinational corporations. So yeah, a huge development and a defeat for one of the most reviled far-right fascistic figures in Peruvian politics, Keiko Fujimori, daughter of infamous dictator Alberto Fujimori, who was responsible for horrific crimes against humanity, mass killings of political opponents, mass sterilizations of indigenous women. The far right was dealt a blow here, and the aspirations of so many poor and working class Peruvians rest with Pedro Castillo. All right, Walter, you're going to cover that story in Liberation News. Let's talk about, as we close out here, the big stories in Liberation News newsletter. Again, we urge people to subscribe. What's there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, check out our coverage of Peru. We're going to have ongoing coverage of Peru. You can also find out about dramatic political developments in Israel. There's an article I want to recommend that's titled, Who is the Arch Racist Poised to Head Israeli Government? Tells you all about Neftali Bennett, who is one of the most vile politicians in Israel, and in all likelihood will be the next prime minister, replacing Benjamin Netanyahu, who is, of course, himself a vile racist, too. And I also want to encourage people to check out this very inspiring story. Community mobilizes against abortion ban in Lebanon, Ohio. Lebanon, Ohio is a very small town. The city government, the town government passed this draconian, obviously illegal anti-abortion law. And many, many people turned out to stand up for women's rights and against this extreme bigoted attack that's going on all across the country against abortion rights and against reproductive rights. So check that out. Community mobilizes against abortion ban in Lebanon, Ohio, and sign up to receive our newsletter that comes out every Monday morning. You can find a link to that on liberationnews.org right at the very top. It says sign up for Liberation's newsletter. So please check that out and follow us every day, liberationnews.org, for all of the news and analysis and reports from across the country that you won't find in the corporate media. Okay, we're going to leave it there for this segment of the Socialist Program. Tomorrow, we're back with Richard Wolff. We have that segment every Wednesday. We've been going over basic Marxist categories and definitions and concepts with Professor Richard Wolff. We're going to do that again tomorrow. On Thursday, we're going to continue our multi-part series where we look at, examine, do a deep dive on China's foreign policy since the victory of the revolution in October 1949. This is a conversation that we're having with Dr. Ken Hammond. Really important, interesting insight. You won't get it from any of the books. And we are taking this analysis, this assessment of China over the decades, bringing it to all of the listeners to the socialist program. So stay with us. 
all the rest of this week. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.